Welcome to the Verity Podcast for Tuesday, January 23rd, 2024, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Scott Wallace. And I'm Eric Steiner. Here's a look at today's top stories. Ron DeSantis pulls out of the 2024 U.S. presidential race. Narendra Modi inaugurates a controversial Hindu temple. 1.4 million protest against Germany's right-wing AFD party. Netanyahu rejects a Hamas proposal to end the war in Gaza. A U.S. airbase in Iraq is attacked by an Iran-backed militia. U.N. staff in Iraq are accused of demanding bribes. The Supreme Court rejects an appeal from a Hunter Biden associate. Sports Illustrated's publisher says it will lay off most staff. And Cameroon launches a landmark malaria vaccine program. Topping our podcast, Ron DeSantis ends his 2024 run and endorses Donald Trump. Here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, Al Jazeera, Financial Times, Sky News, Politico, and New York Times. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis dropped out of the 2024 presidential race on Sunday, stating he couldn't see a, quote, clear path to victory. He instead endorsed Republican frontrunner former President Donald Trump. The 45-year-old's decision follows poll results that showed him as a distant third among GOP candidates, behind Trump and former U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley, in the upcoming New Hampshire primary. Endorsing Trump as a, quote, superior to President Joe Biden, DeSantis said his Republican rival Nikki Haley represented a, quote, repackaged form of warmed-over corporatism. Previously, Trump had dubbed DeSantis as desanctimonious. However, following the suspension of his campaign, The former president called him a, quote, really terrific person. DeSantis's exit has been varyingly attributed to a lack of personal connection with voters, absence of good advisors, negative media coverage, and funding mismanagement. DeSantis's decision to quit leaves Haley, who he barely beat in the race for second place in Iowa, as Trump's last rival standing. All right. Thanks, Eric. On this program, we separate the spin from the facts. You heard the facts, and we definitely have some political spins on this story. Let's start with the left narrative spin from the Fort Worth Star. Ron DeSantis had many attractive qualities to GOP voters. Age, popularity, military experience, and even an Ivy League education. He is a star Republican governor of Florida, even besides his reputation as a competent politician and intellectual. Yet his campaign never really took off, primarily because such old-world attributes don't count for much in the modern political landscape. Trump's campaign plays on divisions, which will see him jettison to the top of the GOP primaries to the detriment of U.S. society. Thanks, Scott. The pro-Trump narrative comes from the Daily Beast. Ron DeSantis isn't a, quote, people person, as far as opinions are concerned. To that extent, he is unfit to be a prominent politician, let alone president of the U.S., He tried being a bit of everything, Reagan, Trump, and even Viktor Orban. Yet his sclerotic campaign's lack of originality reflected this state of play to voters. He got further in the presidential race than he deserved, especially against Donald Trump. And from time to time, we have statistics-based nerd narratives brought to us by the Metaculous Prediction community. This one says there's a 2% chance that Ron DeSantis will become U.S. president by the year 2029. Man, Trump and the left hammered DeSantis for like a year. And now listening to him, they, they love the guy. The guy sounds, guy sounds like a great president now. <laughs> All you got to do is drop out of the race to sound like a good candidate, I guess. News from India as Modi leads the consecration of a controversial Hindu temple. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, NPR Online News, CBS, BBC News, and the Associated Press. 
Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi on Monday led the consecration of a controversial Hindu temple in the northern city of Ayodhya, honoring the wishes of the country's majority Hindu population which had long wanted a temple built on the ruins of a historic mosque, honoring the Hindu god Ram. The temple is built on the land where many Hindus believe Ram was born. The Babri Mosque, built in the 1500s, stood on the land until 1992, when Hindu mobs tore down the building in riots that killed nearly 2,000 people. The movement to build a Hindu temple on the ruins of the mosque sparked the mass popularity of Modi's Bharatiya Janata Party. The Hindu nationalist BJP had promised to build the long-awaited Ram Temple, and construction began after a 2019 Supreme Court ruling that Hindu plaintiffs had the right to the land. However, the court gave Muslim contestants a piece of land 15 miles or 24 kilometers away to build a new mosque, but its construction has yet to begin. More than 8,000 people, including dignitaries, actors, and athletes, attended Monday's ceremony, which was capped by the unveiling of a 51-inch, or 1.3-meter, black stone idol of Ram. The temple is not finished yet, and some political analysts believe the event was intended to launch Modi's re-election bid as a sign of his party's achievement ahead of the national elections this spring. The three-story temple will span nearly 7.4 acres and cost an estimated $217 million. In honor of the temple's significance, many states declared Monday a public holiday, and stock and money markets were closed. 100,000 visitors are expected at the temple daily, and Indian media has extensively covered the ceremony. Addressing the crowd, Modi called the temple's construction the advent of a new era, signifying the popularity of the BJP amongst India's 80% Hindu population. However, BJP opposition parties, including the Indian National Congress, declined Modi's invitation to attend the ceremony. Thanks for presenting the facts, Scott. Our first spin is Narrative A, coming from the Daily Beast. Monday celebrations honoring the construction of the Ram Temple in Ayodhya show the unity and joy of Hindus across India. Prime Minister Modi has worked so hard to lift India, and he has the total support of his constituents. While Monday's ceremony represented joy and inspiration, some leftist detractors seemed committed to undermining the holy and symbolic commemoration of Ram. However, these bitter politicians will have to live with the rise of Modi and his party, and the rest of India will celebrate all of the great accomplishments. And we have Narrative B from Al Jazeera. Monday's event unveiling the Ram Temple was just an egotistical ceremony for Modi, who was desperate to manufacture enthusiasm for his re-election bid. Not only was the event insulting to India's 200 million Muslims, but it was also an embarrassment because the temple wasn't even finished. Modi failed to build his vanity temple in time for the elections, yet he was still shameless enough to honor a semi-constructed building. The prime minister is still showing that he cares more about his image than he does India's diverse electorate. The nerds from Metaculus are saying there's a 92% chance that the BJP will win the 2024 national election in India. Big news in Germany is 1.4 million protests against right-wing AFD in weekend demonstrations. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, France 24, DW, Reuters, The Guardian, and CNN. Mass protests against the right-wing Alternative for Germany, or AFD, party took place in Berlin and other major cities across Germany over the weekend. Thousands also took to the streets in cities in the country's east that are viewed as having a strong AFD presence, including Dresden and Leipzig. In the capital, Berlin, around 100,000 people rallied in the city center on Sunday evening, while at least 100,000 demonstrators reportedly gathered in Munich in southern Germany, far more than was expected. 
A planned protest march through the city was called off by the organizing group known as Campact and Fridays for Future due to overcrowding. In Cologne, about 10,000 people turned down, according to the local police. In Frankfurt, another 35,000 people took to the streets on Saturday for a peaceful, quote, defend democracy march. In total, more than 1.4 million gathered in more than 100 German cities over the weekend in opposition to what the group calls the far-right AFD. In a video message on Sunday, German President Frank-Walter Steinmeier welcomed the protest as an encouraging sign against misanthropy and right-wing extremism. German Vice Chancellor and Green Party politician Robert Habeck also expressed his support for the demonstrators. He said, we're flying the flag for our democracy. The mass protests against the AFD were sparked following a report by the investigative journalism network Corrective in early January. The report alleged that AFD members discussed the mass deportation of migrants, asylum seekers, and citizens of foreign origin, the so-called Remigration Project, at a meeting with neo-Nazis and other far-right individuals. Meanwhile, the AFD distanced itself from the meeting, describing it as a, quote, private event and not an AFD party event, while denying that a deportation, quote, master plan was part of its political agenda. The public outcry that followed the meeting's revelation intensified calls for banning the AFD, which has recently reached new heights in the polls. Oh, thank you, Eric. The pro-establishment narrative on this story comes from CNN. The secret AFD Nazi meeting is reminiscent of the secret AFD Nazi meeting is reminiscent of the Vonsi conference in Nazi Germany, and thus the darkest chapter in German history. However, these protests are an encouraging sign that people have recognized the need to prove their spirit of cohesion and humanity is stronger than that of exclusion and fear. The AFD is exploiting the legitimate concerns of many Germans, but this has no political solutions to offer. Only populism and hatred. Nothing less than the future of democracy is at stake. Follow that with an establishment critical narrative coming from Spiked. The liberal mainstream press is jumping on the AFD's alleged, quote, remigration plan and hundreds of thousands of citizens are falling for the government's campaign to discredit the millions of citizens who agree with the party's fear for the future. German farmers protesting against the government's policies are just the latest example of this. The real reason the political establishment is now discussing banning the AFD is that this genuine fear could be expressed at the ballot box. If the establishment believed in democracy, why are they considering banning a popular political party? And the nerd narrative from Metaculus. There's a 50% chance that Germany will elect a new chancellor by January 2026. Netanyahu rejects a Hamas proposal to end the Gaza war. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Voice of America, BBC News, Reuters, Al Jazeera, The Times of Israel, and Associated Press. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu on Sunday rejected a proposal to end the war in Gaza submitted by Hamas, who offered to release all Israeli hostages in exchange for leaving Hamas intact, withdrawing Israeli forces from Gaza, and releasing Palestinian prisoners. Netanyahu has repeatedly vowed that Hamas must be destroyed. Netanyahu said such a deal would amount to capitulation and mean soldiers had fallen in vain. Israeli Defense Minister Yov Gallant told the families of the hostages that Israeli operations in Khan Yunis will expand, with reports on Monday that Israeli forces had advanced into the west of Khan Yunis and closed in on the city's two main hospitals. A day after Netanyahu's comments, relatives of Israelis held hostage in Gaza stormed an Israeli parliamentary committee session Monday to demand that lawmakers do more to try to free their loved ones. Protests were also held over the weekend in Tel Aviv to show disapproval of Netanyahu and call for new elections. 
Ahead of several Monday meetings between the EU's 27 foreign ministers and their Israeli and Palestinian counterparts, the EU sent to its member countries a discussion paper regarding potential solutions to the conflict. One suggestion was a preparatory peace conference involving the EU, Egypt, Jordan, Saudi Arabia, the Arab League, the U.S., and the U.N. U.S., British, and European officials are reportedly pressuring Israel to allow more humanitarian aid for Palestinians to enter Gaza via the southern Israeli port of Ashdod. As reported Sunday, aid would reach Ashdod from Cyprus and then be transported by land to the Kiram Shalom crossing, which is already open for aid deliveries to Gaza. The U.S. on Friday said Israel would allow flour to enter through Ashdod. Gaza's health ministry reports that the conflict has killed over 25,000 people in the Gaza Strip, the majority of whom were women and children. Gaza's health ministry reports that the conflict has killed over 25,000 people in the Gaza Strip, the majority of whom were women and children. The war has also created a rapidly deteriorating humanitarian situation in the Strip. The official Israeli death toll on October 7th stands at around 1,200 people, and there are still over 100 hostages being held in the Gaza Strip. Thank you, Scott, for the facts. We have a round of spins, beginning with a pro-establishment narrative. It's coming from Fox. Israelis and Palestinians must make peace via a two-state solution. Though it may seem that it has never been as difficult to make peace, moderates must rise above the populist extremism of Hamas and the Israeli political right so the land can be shared. Both Israeli and Palestinian national aspirations are valid projects that deserve to be treated with respect and dignity. The two-state solution may not be the most equitable or desirable for either side, but it's the most achievable outcome. Jerusalem Post chimes in with the pro-Israel narrative. Hamas's October 7th attack on Israel was the final nail in the coffin for the establishment of a Palestinian state. Since Israel withdrew from Gaza in 2005, the enclave has essentially existed as a terrorist-run proto-state run by Hamas. Given the Palestinian Authority's inefficacy, Israel has no partners for peace, and the last 20 years in Gaza prove this. A violent, terrorist-run Palestinian state would be an existential threat to Israel's security. The pro-Palestine narrative comes from Mother Jones. Israel killed the two-state solution. There can't be a Palestinian state after nearly 75 years of Israeli policies effectively atomizing and dividing the Palestinian political scene and physical landscape via a system of apartheid and occupation. The only solution is to accept reality. Israel is an apartheid state that practices sovereignty over the region. And this apartheid must be dismantled so that all people residing in the land can live free as equals. And finally, a nerd narrative from Metaculus. There's a 64% chance that Israel will have de facto power in the Gaza Strip on January 1st, 2025. U.S. troops are being examined for brain injuries after a militia attack in Iraq. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Business Insider, Press TV, New York Times, Fox News, The Cradle, and Tech for Good. The U.S. Central Command, or CENTCOM, stated that several American personnel stationed in Iraq are undergoing traumatic brain injury evaluations following an attack targeting the Al-Assad Air Base on Saturday that reportedly wounded an Iraqi service member, adding that damages were still being assessed. The Iran-aligned Islamic resistance Iraq Umbrella Group has claimed responsibility for the barrage of rockets and missiles launched against the base, hosting U.S. soldiers in the western province of Anbar, alleging that the attack was conducted in retaliation for U.S. support for Israel in the ongoing Gaza war. This was the latest and most successful attack that Iran-backed militias carried out so far against U.S. troops in Iraq and Syria since the Gaza war broke out, with two projectiles out of at least 17 fired at the base getting through air defense systems and injuring at least two U.S. soldiers. 
Since October last year, U.S. troops have reportedly been under attack at least 83 times in Syria and another 58 times in Iraq, including last week when three armed drones were intercepted and shot down in Iraq near where U.S. and other international forces are stationed. There are currently at least 2,500 U.S. troops in Iraq, most of them at the al-Assad base, reportedly training and advising Iraqis to fight the Islamic State group IS, which invaded northwest Iraq and occupied the country's second-largest city, Mosul, in 2014. Meanwhile, on Monday, Iraqi Prime Minister Mohammed Shia al-Sudani, who has recently announced moves that would eventually lead to the withdrawal of U.S. troops from his country, warned Iran-backed militia groups and the U.S. against further escalation inside Iraqi territory. Voice of America brings us the Democratic narrative. Americans must be assured that the Biden administration will not allow this extremely serious ballistic missile attack on a base that hosts its troops to go unanswered. As Iran-backed militias have ramped up their attack, so will the U.S. to establish deterrence and to hold such groups accountable for their wrongdoing. And now for the Republican narrative, it comes from the Wall Street Journal. As the commander-in-chief of the U.S., Joe Biden should have done better to protect troops overseas from enemy assaults. He may well have thought that retaliating Iran-backed militias would be enough to restore deterrence. But by now, it's clear that such moves have failed to achieve that goal. America must change its focus to the instigator of all these attacks and make Iran pay for its actions. Nor News brings us the pro-Iran narrative. Iran has nothing to do with the Islamic resistance in Iraq. Thus, it has nothing to do with the repeated attacks that Iraqi resistance groups have launched against U.S. bases and facilities recently. U.S. officials must realize that they are ultimately responsible for the escalation of violence, as their choice to support the Israeli massacre in Gaza has fueled anti-American sentiment in the region. And finally, there's a nerd narrative for this story, coming from Metaculus. It says there's a 10% chance that the U.S. and Iran will be primary actors on opposite sides of a war before 2025. More news from the Middle East as U.N. staff for an Iraq aid project are, quote, demanding bribes. Here are the facts as agreed upon by The Guardian and the United Nations Development Program. An investigation led by The Guardian claims that employees of the U.N.'s Funding Facility for Stabilization, or FFS, program in Iraq have demanded and accepted bribes in return for the allocation of construction contracts. The FFS was established in May 2015 by the U.N. Development Program, or UNDP with support from the Global Coalition Against Daesh, the Islamic State group, at the request of the Iraqi government and holds a budget of $1.88 billion. The project claims to focus on rehabilitating public infrastructure and providing essential services to conflict-affected areas. The Guardian cites three employees and four contractors who say bribes above to 15% of a contract's value have been demanded by UNDP staff with employees consequently ensuring that contractors pass the vetting process. A contractor further told The Guardian that nobody can get a contract without paying, and that there is nothing in this country you can get without paying, including the Iraqi government and UNDP. The Guardian also alleges instances of UNDP reports falsely claiming completed FFS projects, while interviewees speaking anonymously accuse such documents of being made for PR purposes, with the reality in Iraq being a far cry from what you perceive. Responding to The Guardian, UNDP claims the agency had zero tolerance for fraud and corruption, and the allegations will be thoroughly assessed and, where appropriate, investigated. Thank you, Scott, for those facts. The first spin is an establishment critical narrative coming from Brookings. Despite international attempts to revive Iraq following the U.S.'s disastrous 2003 invasion, opportunities for corruption have increased, and initiatives to cure this institutional sickness have been at best band-aids on a fundamentally broken system. 
Though the U.S. did not necessarily create these corrupt tendencies in Iraqi governance, its occupation reified already existing patronage networks and created the conditions for an even more vast system of corruption. And Devix brings us the pro-establishment narrative. Iraq quietly continues to benefit from steady stability and growth, contrary to what cynical observers may say. Iraq is the victim of 40 years of war and misfortune as opposed to a hotbed for corruption. And while there have certainly been many examples of mismanagement since 2003, the country's future is bright. The current government has put Iraq back on the right track, and if it can remain secure, it will continue toward prosperity. Metaculus says there's a 45% chance of a civil war in Iraq before 2036, and that is the nerd narrative. A Hunter Biden associate has had his appeal dismissed by the Supreme Court. Here are the facts as agreed upon by NBC, U.S. News and World Report, and Daily Caller. Devin Archer, a former business partner of Hunter Biden, had an appeal challenging his conviction of defrauding a Native American tribe declined by the U.S. Supreme Court on Monday increasing the likelihood that he will serve time in prison. Archer was convicted in 2018 for involvement in a scheme to defraud the corporate arm of the South Dakota-based Wakpomney Lake community of the Oglala Sioux Tribe, led by businessman Jason Galanis, who pleaded guilty and was sentenced to 14 years in prison. The scheme involved misappropriating millions of dollars that the corporation raised by issuing bonds. More than $60 million in tribal bonds were fraudulently sold in the scheme. New York's second U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals denied Archer's appeal of his sentence last year after the Supreme Court rejected his initial appeal in 2021. And Archer raised a second appeal to the Supreme Court after he claimed that a district court erred in calculating the sentence range. The justices did not comment on their decision to not listen to the appeal. Archer rose to prominence after becoming a key witness in the House of Representatives probe into President Joe Biden's involvement in his son's foreign business dealings. Archer and Hunter both served on the board of Ukrainian gas company Burisma. Archer testified before the GOP-led House Oversight Committee last July, saying that the Biden family brand shielded Burisma. While Joe Biden was vice president, Hunter and Archer each made $80,000 per month at Burisma, but they had their salaries greatly reduced after Joe Biden left the vice presidency. In addition to his prison sentence, Archer was ordered to forfeit $15.7 million and pay $43.4 million in restitution. Hunter Biden is not involved in the bond issuance fraud, but Archer used his connection to the Bidens to bolster his credentials. All right, thanks, Eric. We have a Republican spin on this story from Daily Mail. Birds of a feather flock together, and Hunter Biden's close associates continue to come under fire for their criminal acts, just like Hunter Biden and his father. Devin Archer has been involved in shady financial schemes that defraud others to enrich themselves. However, Archer is only involved in a scheme that defrauded one Native American tribe. Meanwhile, the Bidens have defrauded the entire country. Follow that with a Democratic narrative. It comes from The Hill. The American justice system is dealing with Devin Archer for alleged crimes, and he will have to pay for his involvement in the bond fraud scheme. This case has nothing to do with Hunter Biden, and it certainly has no relation to President Biden. Archer may have been an associate of Hunter Biden and a key witness for the GOP, but the Biden family is not responsible for all of Archer's actions. And a nerd narrative from Metaculus, there's a 50% chance that President Joe Biden will have a net approval rating of at least negative 11.5 by November 2024. Sports Illustrated's publisher to lay off most staff. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, Oregon Live, ABC News, and Daily Wire. 
The union representing Sports Illustrated said Friday that the magazine's publisher, Arena Group, is laying off, quote, a significant number, possibly all of the magazine's staff members after losing its publishing license. In an email to staff, Arena, which missed a $3.75 million payment to its licensing company, Authentic Brands Group, or AGB, earlier this month, said some employees would be let go right away, while others would be terminated at the end of a 90-day notice period. AGB bought the magazine from Meredith Publishing in 2019 after Meredith bought it from Time Incorporated a year prior. While the 10-year licensing agreement between AGP and Arena has fallen through, AGB says it still wants to ensure the continued publication of Sports Illustrated and is confident that going forward, the brand will continue to evolve and grow. The year Meredith bought Sports Illustrated, the magazine went from being a weekly issue to a bi-weekly issue and then a monthly issue in 2020. Founded in 1954, it has been a leading sports journalism publication for 70 years, including online and print. The magazine has also faced backlash for several decisions in recent years, including putting a transgender woman on the cover of its annual swimsuit issue in 2021 and last year. It also faced controversy following a November report that found it had published artificial intelligence-generated writing and photographs, and in December, Arena fired CEO Ross Levinson. Thank you, Scott. The left's narrative is coming from MSNBC. Though it's no stranger to commercial woes, Sports Illustrated's possible demise is a heartbreaking chapter in the world of journalism. The world-leading magazine, which informed the world about legends including Muhammad Ali and Billie Jean King, is more than just a sports publication. It's an inclusivity champion that prioritizes crucial issues such as race, sexuality, and class. It can't be replaced. And the right narrative spin from Red State. Sports Illustrated was successful for 70 years for two reasons and two reasons only. It wrote about sports and it put attractive women on the cover. Since it decided to become a social justice magazine in recent years, former subscribers understandably dropped the publication from their reading list. Its current predicament should come as no surprise. Winter storms across the U.S. kill at least 90. Here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, CBS, Associated Press, Reuters, The Weather Channel, and Al Jazeera. Heavy snow and ice, bitter winds, and biting cold have been blamed for at least 90 deaths across the U.S. in recent days. The weather-related deaths included at least 25 in Tennessee and 16 in Oregon, which remains under a state of emergency following deadly ice storms. The fierce winter storms have not only resulted in freezing temperatures and fatalities, but have also left thousands without power, closed schools, and significantly affected air traffic. According to the U.S. National Weather Service, temperatures could plunge at least 20 to 30 degrees Fahrenheit below average from the High Plains east to the Ohio and Tennessee valleys by Monday evening. While the icy conditions are expected to ease in the next few days, meteorologists forecast that warm air and rain could cause flooding and ice jams on some rivers and streams in the Midwest and Northeast. These storms have come almost a year since last February's generational Arctic blast that brought dangerously cold temperatures to northeastern parts of the country, with the wind chill factor atop Mount Washington reaching a record negative 108 degrees Fahrenheit, or negative 77 degrees Celsius. Thanks, Eric, for those chilly facts. We have Narrative A from the Washington Post. While many underestimate the risks of freezing temperatures, the cold snaps wreaking havoc across the U.S. are an expected manifestation of climate change. Since the risk of severe winter storms from the North Atlantic to Central Europe could increase significantly in the coming years, the U.S. and the world must act to mitigate extreme events. Narrative B comes from PBS. 
It's easy to blame climate change for the U.S.'s current fierce weather. However, the planet's warming trend has nothing to do with the recent severe winter storms. While climate change can slow down the jet stream, its role in intensifying winter storms and cold air outbreaks has yet to be conclusively determined. And a nerd narrative from Metaculus, there's a 50% chance that the Arctic will essentially be ice-free by January 2038. Our final story, the world's first malaria vaccine rollout begins in Cameroon. Here are the facts, as agreed upon by BBC News, the Associated Press, The Guardian, and France 24. Following a 13% success rate pilot campaign in Kenya, Ghana, and Malawi, the African nation of Cameroon started the official rollout of the RTSS malaria vaccine on Monday. It will be free for all children up to the age of six months old and occur alongside other routine vaccines to make it easier for parents. RTSS, also known as Moscurix, is only about 30% effective and requires four doses, with its production estimated at up to 15 million doses per year. Meanwhile, a second vaccine, which was approved by the World Health Organization last October and is being developed at Oxford University, is reportedly cheaper, requires three doses, and could have an annual output of 200 million doses. For now, 662,000 doses of RTSS will be distributed to Cameroon, which accounts for 95% of all global malaria deaths. The West African nation suffered over 2 million cases of malaria in 2022, and the disease accounted for 12% of deaths for children under 5 in 2021. Malaria also kills more than 600,000 people across Africa every year, with more than 80% of the total deaths on the continent attributed to children under 5. Over 300,000 doses of RTSS arrived in Cameroon's capital Yaoundé in November following more than 2 million inoculations across Ghana, Kenya, and Malawi since 2019. According to the Global Vaccine Alliance, 20 other countries are expected to receive their own doses this year, including Burkina Faso, Liberia, Niger, and Sierra Leone. However, Gavi said only 18 million doses will be issued before 2025. Neither of the WHO-approved vaccines inhibits transmission of malaria, which means other measures will need to be implemented to help boost protection, including bed nets and insecticidal sprays. Thanks, Scott, for those facts. The round of spins begins with a pro-establishment narrative coming from the Council on Foreign Relations. Widespread vaccine hesitancy in Africa was exemplified during COVID, and this destructive issue has not gone away. Obstacles to successful vaccination campaigns include individual, cultural, and religious beliefs, as well as the spread of misinformation. National, continental, and global institutions must build upon their pro-vaccine campaigns if they want to help African states increase inoculations and decrease deadly diseases. And BMJ brings us the establishment critical narrative. The patronizing tone with which global health institutions speak about Africa is astounding. Perhaps modern-day vaccine hesitancy has nothing to do with misinformation and more to do with the data. As the WHO is beginning its implied consent, RTSS vaccine rollout, meaning the recipients receiving the jab were unaware of it, they probably also didn't disclose the studies that showed the vaccine to increase meningitis by 10 times and double the risk of death in girls. Metaculus is giving us our final nerd narrative. They say there's a 41% chance that global malaria mortality rates will be reduced by 90% when compared with 2015 rates by the year 2030. (laughs) 
Thanks for listening to the Verity Podcast for Tuesday, January 23rd, 2024. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. Find out more at Verity.news and you can download the Verity app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Scott Wallace, I'm Eric Steiner inviting you to join us next time on the Verity Podcast. Thank you.